What's up, this your boy Lil Duval, and check out my podcast, Conversations with Unc, on the Black Effect Podcast Network. Each and every Tuesday, Conversations with Unc podcast feature casuals and in-depth talk about ebbs and flows of life and the pursuit of happiness. Unlike my work on stage, I tap into a more serious and sensitive side to give life advice and simply offer words of encouragement, yet remind folks to never forget to laugh. Every Tuesday, listen to Conversations with Unc, hosted by Lil Duval on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Hey, everyone. This is Jody Sweeten from the podcast How Rude, Tanneritos. I've been needing a quick getaway with my family, and the 2024 Hyundai Santa Fe is the perfect vehicle to take us there. It has standard third-row seating, so I'm able to pack my entire family, plus pets, in the car while also having enough room for our camping essentials. Available H-Track all-wheel drive will get us through any dirt trails, and available dual wireless charging pads will ensure we never have to worry about getting stuck with a dead phone in the middle of nowhere. Visit HyundaiUSA.com. Or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Welcome to Movie Crush, a production of iHeartRadio. Hey, everybody, and welcome to Movie Crush Friday Interview Edition in here with Paul again after it seems like it's been a minute, Paul. I think uh, it's been since before I moved to New York, which oh, is where I'm coming. Lord. It's where I'm coming to you now from. That's right. You're in Brooklyn. I am. Yeah. Uh, in a little closet right now in Brooklyn. Come out of the closet, Paul. <laughs> Already. Come on. Maybe, maybe by the end of this episode, I will. <laughs> Uh, that's right. And, you know, we've spoken since then, obviously, but, uh, I'm, everyone should know that you're doing well. You got a great place. You're happy. You're living with, uh, with your lady friend now, finally, after, uh, quite a while apart. So congratulations. Thanks, man. Yeah, I appreciate it. I'm enjoying New York. It's hot though. And I'm getting used to having window air conditioners instead of, uh, central AC. But... Mm. Yeah. Those windows, they can pump it out sometimes though, if they're good. They can, but it's just uh, it's just an adjustment for sure. <laughs> yeah. Sometimes yeah. you have to wait wait to get cool rather yeah. than having it right away. New York hot is different too. It's pretty steamy. The concrete makes it very unpleasant. Yes, agreed. <laughs> uh, but enough about New York City because we're here to talk about a Western. We haven't done many Westerns on this show. And when you threw out a short list of movies, uh, Unforgiven was on there, and it had been a while since I've seen it, so I, I jumped all over this one. I'm glad, man. I'm a I'm a Western fan, and um, I, in fact, Unforgiven though I I didn't see this 
for the first time until a couple months ago. Uh-huh. I've kind of been going on an, a Clint Eastwood kick and uh, mostly like the films he's directed himself and Unforgiven is always has always kind of been considered one of his top movies. Sure. And so, I don't know, just like a couple months ago, I watched it and I was just like blown away by how great it was and nice. really excited to talk about it today. Dude, that's great. I didn't know that this was new to you. Uh, Clint Eastwood uh, is a legend. He uh, he's someone whose politics I don't agree with, but I just I love the guy. Even so, you know, it's I forget about all that stuff. He um, this I believe his movie coming out this year will be either his 39th or 40th film as director. Which is just crazy, man. He's not I don't feel like he's on the short list for a lot of people for best directors and he should be. At the tender age of 91, I think. <laughs> yes. Uh, he's pumping out movies one one every year at this uh-huh. rate. Uh, and it's just, it's honestly, it's pretty inspiring to like watch at this point because, um, uh, you know, some of them are hit and miss, but I like a lot of them, especially his recent work and just the way he works. And like, like you mentioned, I, I tend to disagree with his politics as well, but I think that that'll make this conversation richer because despite his politics, I personally find a lot more ambivalence Mm -hmm. and uh, nuance in his movies than you might think from somebody who, to sort of caricaturize him, you might think of as like a crotchety old conservative guy telling young people to get off my lawn, you know? Yeah, I mean, he's really not doing a lot of that in his movies. I guess Gran Torino... Yeah, had a, had a bit of that element to it, but Gran Torino was fucking great. I love that movie. Yeah, I actually just watched it on a plane a couple of weeks ago for the first time. Yeah, um, it's good, huh? Yeah, man, it's good, and it's it's so fun to dive into like sort of his psyche because again, he has these like surprisingly like progressive views or things he shows in his movies, mm-hmm. despite him sort of being like a sort of old fashioned guy who believes in like, say, you know, strong men. And, and, you know, uh, he thinks, you know, America has become a nation of pussies and right. says stuff like that, you know, but, sure. uh, and I think, and unforgiven is, is a great example of sort of how he sort of deconstructs a genre that is known for sort of the strong silent man, you know? Yeah. And this is a movie that was, I think everyone kind of thought this was his, his, goodbye to Westerns. Uh, and it kind of had been, uh, although his new movie coming out is sort of a Western, um, not quite like this. I think it's set in the seventies, but it definitely is a, is a bit of a Western. Um, but this definitely is, is his last sort of hurrah to the, the, the pale rider character, this, the Josie Wales, strong, silent type. And, um, I remember when it came out, it was it seemed very much a, a sort of a statement movie. Like, this is it. This is going to be my my swan song for this kind of movie. And what a statement it is! First of all, uh, the fact that it won four Oscars, including Best Picture, surprises me just because how great it is. And um, meaning, like, I feel like a lot of the times the Best Picture often goes to a film that might be good in my mm. opinion, but not the best of that year. And I forget what else would have been nominated that year. But when I look at like the, I looked recently at the list of like all the best picture winners for the past 40 years. Yeah. And like, I can think of a handful of them 
that I would consider like canon movies that like right. people still talk about and I would still go back to mm-hmm. and movies that just have stood the test of time. And I think Unforgiven is one of them for sure. Yeah. So this one, uh, best picture, huh? Yeah. Best picture. And uh, I've got it somewhere here. Best director. I meant, I meant to look that up. Okay. Uh, best editing and best supporting actor for Gene Hackman. Oh God. He's and good. then. He's good, yeah. And then Eastwood himself was nominated for Best Actor, but lost to Al Pacino for Scent of a Woman. Wow! <laughs> a movie I still haven't seen. I saw it ages ago, uh, but I need to need to revisit it. I think. Yeah, it's funny. The um, a couple of comments on that one: Best Editing. I love that this one Best Editing because it is such a thoughtfully edited and paced movie, and I think that they don't get recognized as much. Uh, there's nothing flashy about this movie. It is a very, very simple story. Was that a fly? There's that a gigantic my... <laughs> fly in my closet here. Yeah. Uh, and then the, the with, with Hackman, it's funny you mentioned Pacino because I was thinking when I was watching this how people make such hay out of, uh, like when De Niro and Pacino finally got together in heat and they shared the screen and, and it was great, and they've done that, I think, since then. But, like, why isn't anyone talking about Eastwood and Hackman sharing the screen? And then throw in a Morgan Freeman, like a third legend on top of it. It's like, to me, that was, seeing those two guys go toe-to-toe is just as big a deal to me. Gene Hackman's one of my favorite of all time. I'm like, I miss him so, so much. I know, I know, yeah. He's he's so good in it, and... uh the role he plays, it's easy to sort of say like, oh, you can't imagine this role being played by anybody else. But mm-hmm. I, I really feel that with this role. And and like you said, I don't have they worked him and him and Eastwood work together on any other films? Not that I can think of. I can't I mean, there's probably some obvious one that everyone is like gonna make fun of us for forgetting, but yeah. <laughs> I can't really think of anything. And then Richard Harris is in it too. It's like, good lord. Yeah, it's it's funny because like I or what I most know Richard Harris for is playing Dumbledore in the first two Harry Potter movies. Get out right now. Get out of that closet and leave. (laughs) I'm so mad at you. Before he passed away, he was Dumbledore for two movies. And so he's like, you know, this wizened old gentle soul in Harry Potter. And then seeing him, I, I, I've since, I know he has had a long and illustrious career Uh aside from Harry (laughs) Potter, but uh, seeing him in that, another role he really sort of chews up the scenery in a great way yeah i love english bob he's he's pretty great it, it's funny i thought it was funny how uh in another great role from saul rubinek as uh bochamp the the writer um the writer who has no stomach for this stuff he wants to record the old west he wants to be the biographer of these guys that i think he feels like he admires but i think he admired bob because bob was this sort of winning fun, jovial Englishman when the tables are turned and then he is the biographer of little Bill. Uh, he's, he's in over his head and he knows it and that he's a sadist and a, and a genuinely evil person. And that's not who English Bob was. The Bochamp character. Yeah. He fascinates me for, for a lot of reasons. And I think you hit on it. Um, when you're talking about like the myth of the old West and mm-hmm. how, I feel like the Western compared to some other genres is kind of a very much a genre of cinema, right? That cinema really created the the Western. And so we have this sort of archetypes, the archetypes of Westerns, you know, the good gunslinger mm-hmm. staring down, outgunned, outman staring down a room of bad guys and taking them all out against the odds. 
uh, and Beauchamp is is writing these basically very much fictitious stories, as we learn with English Bob when little Bill sort of corrects him on the mm -hmm. story he was writing about, okay, here's what actually happened. It was not heroic at all. Bob was drunk. Yeah. And the story about he, Corky, that was pretty funny. Yeah, yeah. And the duck, the duck of death, uh, yeah, yeah. really, <laughs> uh, the Duke, the Duke of death. Yeah. The duck of death really just, uh, kind of got lucky and took his time and shot the guy sort of unarmed and without any honor, yeah. honor in quotation marks. And then though, the, sort of Beauchamp switches allegiances and he stays with Hackman because he's enamored with hearing Hackman's stories. And then you see them sort of uh, in, in Hackman's leaky house with the mm -hmm. roof leaking water. <laughs> yeah. And he's telling more stories and you can tell that he's embellishing them himself, right? Yeah, that's just the Most way it goes, likely. I think. Yeah. And then finally, so what I think is interesting is during the final shootout when, when Eastwood shows up and he, you know, he kills the room of quote unquote bad guys and and Beauchamp is in the back, and you see though his face like light up when yeah. he sort of enters the room. And once he starts taking out guys, he's like he's he's sort of twistedly fascinated by it, and he's almost like, oh, this is this is the the best one of them all. This is the king of, oh, of yeah. gunslingers. And he immediately says, okay, who did you shoot first? Yeah. And uh, it's usually traditionally the 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 fastest gun you want to take out or the the most lethal. And mm -hmm. Eastwood's just like, oh, I just got lucky, you know. But he's clearly like still fascinated by this. And even though he's witnessed this horrific violence, he still wants to sort of embellish it and write more books about it. Yeah. And Eastwood, I mean, that scene is so key because they're, they're all like Bill, little Bill is kind of poo-pooing the whole biographer thing until he is his biographer. And then he's way into it and he's embellishing, like you said, and adding to the, the mystifying uh, of these, of himself and people like him. Uh, but, but uh, money just will money doesn't care about any of that stuff. Like the, the, his chance, his entry point is to go right. Like he has the chance, the door is open to start telling his story to this guy. And he just doesn't give a shit. He doesn't want to, he doesn't want to kill people anymore. He doesn't want to glorify killing people anymore. Uh, I mean, that's what this whole movie is about is about, the the guilt that this man feels about the horrible things he's done in his past and how he feels he is a bad guy and he was a bad guy he killed women and children and was a drunk uh, yeah i think that sort of late in the film revelation yeah where i think one of the prostitutes says oh you're the guy little bill said you're the guy who dynamited so-and-so's place and killed women and children mm -hmm. and suddenly as a viewer, you immediately, you, it's suddenly like your worldview is rocked because you wanted to think of Eastwood's character mm -hmm. as this like stoic guy who probably killed for good reasons in his past. And yeah, things yeah. got a little dirty, but he always did maybe not the right thing, but the thing that needed to be done. Mm -hmm. And suddenly you're like, wait a minute, this guy is not nearly as uh, heroic and worth admiration as I might have thought. It makes you make a choice. Mm -hmm. You know, like, because you know something was up because he's a man clearly haunted from his past. They sort of lead you to believe that it's only because of his wife who had passed away. Um, but the, you could tell that there's something more. He's not drinking anymore. Uh, alcoholism is different back then because it annoyed me how much Morgan Freeman kept trying to get him to drink again. <laughs> and I was like, stop, you're not supposed to do that. Don't enable them. 
I'm like, I don't think enabling was a word back then. Yeah. Uh, but boy, that makes it so powerful when he takes that bottle at the end and finally starts drinking, you know? Yeah. So I'm, I'm very curious that that sort of ending we've been talking about a little bit where he finally shows up to the saloon mm-hmm. and he basically, he's outmanned, outgunned, and yet he takes out, I don't know, six guys, let's yeah. say, who knows, maybe more without a scratch on him. Like when you're watching that, what is your reaction to it? Uh, I was into it because I like a good revenge killing in a movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, little Bill was a bad guy. I think they set it up such that you would definitely root for that because of the um, the beginning was so brutal when they cut that woman up. Uh, it, that was a brutal scene to see, and so you really want those fucking guys to to get theirs. Um, but those guys had already gotten theirs, so it's interesting. Like he kills the bar, the saloon owner, uh, in cold blood, it, just for you know having Morgan Freeman's body displayed out in front which he didn't really have a choice of. I imagine mm-hmm. little Bill was, you know, he's calling all the shots in that town. So, I mean, that's kind of one of the things I like about this movie is that they're, it's not so clear cut and they are a little ambiguous with who you should be rooting for. Uh, but he, the, the, one of the best parts of that whole scene is when he's like, you know, any, any, any man that doesn't want to get shot can just go on out the back. And all those fucking guys just get the hell out of there. And they have a chance to kill him too. And they're just, they, you know, they're scared. Yeah. And it, it kind of goes back to, to what little Bob was saying to, to Bochamp earlier about how it's not the, who, who's the fastest gun. It's mm-hmm. who stays the coolest under pressure, I think. Oh God, that uh, scene. Can we talk about that scene? Yeah, absolutely. That the, scene. The, yeah. In the jail. Yeah. When he, uh, little Bob gives him the gun basically. And I mean, that whole scene is great because that's when he, sort of reveals that Bob, English Bob, had been stretching the truth. It's a really long scene. Mm-hmm. And then he gives him that gun, and he's just, he tells him to cock it, and he points it right at his chest. And all that guy's got to do is squeeze the trigger, and he knows he won't. And then he tells him to hand it to English Bob. And it's just such a power play, you know? In my mind, it links up to the Schofield kid character who yeah. who has actually never killed anybody but sees himself or tells everybody he's this this bad man killer and ultimately though like very i think it shows with the bochamp taking the gun it's like very few of us would actually have the nerve or have the whatever you call it to Mm -hmm. be able to do that you know and it takes a certain kind of person to be able to do that and even back then even back then and you know i i don't think there's much of a, a a moral judgment placed on what type of person that is is it somebody who like because all the guys we see who are able to kill are kind of psych- psychopaths a little bit, you know, or they have like they're they're not the best people. So it's like the ability to kill people. What you know, do you lose your soul in the process or something like that? You know. Yeah, I mean that's again that's sort of the central premise of this movie is what does it take to do this? What does it do to you? Like how does it change you as a person? Uh, in this case, as a man to do it. Uh, I mean, it's one of the classic lines in movie history, you know, is, is Clint at that one point when, and this is, that's what I texted you immediately when you said unforgiven, it's a hell of a thing. Killing a man, take away, you take away everything he's got and everything he's ever going to have. And I think you just see on the kid's face, like he never even considered what it would feel like because he was drawn in by the, 
by Billy the Kid and all these stories, you know, he wanted all the all the notoriety and stuff until it actually happened and then it just wrecked him. Yeah, and the stories that somebody like Bochamp probably makes money off of writing, you know? Right. And yeah, the performance, so the actor, I had to look him up, James Wolvett, who plays the Schofield kid. I haven't seen uh, him much else. He was great. I, yeah, he's great. And I love that he's so grating and annoying for like uh-huh. most of the movie <laughs> intentionally. And then the performance he gives in that scene where he breaks down after killing one of the guys, like it's just hard. It's, it's a great performance and it's just heartbreaking because you see you can literally see the psyche shift in that scene. And then, you know, the moment where he says, you know, I'm not, I'm not picking up a gun again and I'm never killing anyone again. Yeah. If there's any sort of hope to be found in a movie like this, it's the Mm -hmm. fact that somebody like him takes that view and, and sort of decides to leave this life behind, you know? Yeah. And you get the feeling that that's going to haunt him for the rest of his life, even though that guy really deserved what he had coming. Uh, which leads me to another one of my favorite lines about, you know, the, the guy kind of deserving it is when little Bill is dying on the floor of the saloon and he says, you know, I don't deserve to die like this. And uh, money just says deserves got nothing to do with it. <laughs> this is such a good line. And that's a close, as close as this movie comes to like a, not pithy, but just sort of a, cause he plays it so straight. You know, there a lot of times if this would have been a movie with Arnold Schwarzenegger or something is, the retired old guy, it would have just been chock full of corny lines. But that's as close as it comes, and I thought it was a good line. Yeah, and and it's sort of a meta line, right? It, it's like we like to think of our our Westerns, especially having clear-cut good guys and bad guys. Yeah. And the bad guys deserve what's coming to them. And Eastwood just says, you know, deserves got nothing to do with it. It's just a matter of doing it, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Hey, this is Jody Sweeten from the podcast How Rude Tanneritos. As a nostalgic voice from your past, I'm here to remind you that amongst the stressful and chaotic existence we live in 2024, you deserve to get away. It's time for a vacation, no matter when you're hearing this. And let me tell you how you'll get there. The 2024 Hyundai Santa Fe. Want to bring the family to the mountains with the Santa Fe's available H-Track all-wheel drive? Well, it's got standard third-row seating and available dual wireless charging pads for the kids who just want to stare at their phone and not talk to you. You know what I mean. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. If you use paper, you're a human. But if you choose paper, you're a papertarian. Someone who lives a paper-based lifestyle because it has a positive impact on the planet. And also because it's the easiest choice you'll make all day. Seriously. It's as easy as reaching for boxed instead of bottled water. It's as easy as opting for beauty products that come in paper packaging. It's as easy as grabbing eggs in a cardboard container. And that's all in one trip to the grocery store, which, if we're being honest, you were planning to go to anyway. But paper isn't just an easy choice. Papertarians know that it's the smart choice, too. Because paper comes from trees, a renewable and sustainably managed resource. And paper products are designed to be recycled. In fact, when you choose products that come in paper-based packaging, those fibers can go on to be recycled up to seven times. So why wouldn't you go Papertarian? I'll wait. Learn more at howlifeunfolds.com slash papertarian.
The Home Depot wants every mom to have their own outdoor oasis this Mother's Day. Whether that be a new space to relax or a beautiful garden upgrade, at The Home Depot, you can give mom a gift that's as unique as she is with a stylish and comfortable place to entertain or relax for the mom who does it all. And with convenient delivery, you won't have to stress over getting it to her either. Looking to step up your Mother's Day flowers for the mom who's great with gardening? Let mom's green thumb do some digging with colorful flowers, pots, and premium soils to Bring out the most in our patios, walkways, and gardens with the Home Depot's Mother's Day Savings Event happening now. Get Vigoro Potting Soil, just $8.97 for strong, healthy, vibrant plants indoors and outside. Start your Mother's Day shopping and saving today by checking out the Home Depot's extensive selection online at homedepot.com or directly in-store near you with convenient pickup and delivery options. See homedepot.com delivery for details. The Home Depot, how doers get more done. We should talk a little bit about just how beautiful of a film this is. Those gorgeous shots at dusk and dawn, uh, the the silhouette of he and uh, Ned when they're riding those horses at sunset. It's just, it, he pulls out all the stops of kind of the beautiful old Western. Um, like the, that's what you want to see when you see a movie like this. If you want to see horses silhouetted against a red setting sun. Shout out to, let's see, the DP was uh, Jack Green, who uh, I looked him up. He's, he's DP'd a lot of Eastwood stuff, especially his stuff in the 90s. But yeah, beautiful film. Um, I love the opening and closing shots of the, the sun setting with the tree in Eastwood at the, the grave of his wife. Yeah. Um, it's, it's a very sort of classical looking frame, you know, yeah. like something you'd see in a movie from the 50s or something. And um, I had to look it up. It, I, they shot it mostly in Alberta, Canada, which is oh, where okay. a lot of Westerns are shot. Like Days of Heaven was shot there, I think. Oh, yeah. It's big so open plains. Big open plains. Um, I will say that uh, a fun tidbit is that they say William Money lives in, and it's mentioned he lives in Hodgman County, Kansas, mm -hmm. which is literally two counties away from where I grew up. Oh, no way. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's a real county. Um just a fun little thing. But yeah, they didn't shoot it in Kansas as far as I can tell. But. <laughs> you think they came all the way from Kansas just to fuck us? <laughs> that was a great line. Yeah. Um, I was a, it was a little like disconcerting and, and really hammers home like how sexual assault has uh, sometimes not even changed that much. Like the, the excuse that Sheriff Bill uses after the assault is like, these are pretty good guys. Like, you know, what's, what good is it going to do to go after them then and ruin their lives? And I, I heard that. And I was just like, God, you hear that same shit today when it's like, a, you know, that, the I can't remember. Was it the Duke uh, student from the yeah. good, from the good family uh, behind the dumpster. And you hear that same thing trotted out like, well, why ruin his life now for this one mistake? And it's just so maddening. It's crazy. Cause like, you expect to hear an, a line like that echoed in a movie that's coming out maybe in 2021 yeah. where it's like hitting the pulse of what's, you know, current in the culture. Mm -hmm. And yet to hear it in a movie from 1992, which is, ba you know, and it's basically a word for word of what, like you said, these, these lines that get trotted out mm -hmm. in cases today, it's, it's a very smart script uh written yeah. by let's see david webb peoples who also yeah. wrote blade runner yeah and yeah man the role of the women in this film is really fascinating i think you know because after after the the cutting happens at the beginning of the film 
they first of all say, little Bill, you're only going to whip them. Yeah. And then once they agree to, to bring the ponies, he's like, oh, we don't even need to whip them at I this know. point. Yeah. And like you said, they're good boys. We don't want to ruin their lives. And the fact that um, during that scene, Skinny, the bartender, s- says, oh, I've got a contract here. These women are property. Uh-huh. They're an investment of capital. You know, all the men here see them as less than human, as the equivalent of, you know, yeah. of horses, right? And the fact that the women really have no recourse through quote unquote legal means yeah. is ultimately why they turn to pooling their money and trying to get somebody to come and uh, and kill these two guys. Yeah, like all the money they have, it feels like. And, you know, they I, I do love that they gave them some agency. There is a, you know, a very brief, albeit feminist message in this and that they're not going to take it anymore. Like this was one step too far. And they're not going to sit down and and take this lightly uh, and let these guys go. Like, you know, at any point they could have called this off because things really go sideways. You know, once Bill learns that they have put out money to to get some assassins in there and uh, they're they're They stick to their guns. I'm I, what I really would have liked to have seen was one of them ended up sort of doing one of the killings themselves. I think that would have um, I would have liked to have seen that. But, uh, you know, that wasn't this movie. Yeah. And, and by the end of it, though, you know, at the very end, once once Eastwood's kind of killed all these guys and starts to leave town, you see all the women watching him right away. Yeah. And they all kind of have this look of like, shit, was this really worth it? You know, right. Even though justice was achieved, mm-hmm. like, look at the violence that was perpetuated. And I don't know if, if you saw it this way, but the, the woman who has the, the assault committed against her, I think her name's Delilah. Mm-hmm. She, there's a shot of her at the very end when Eastwood's riding away and she almost has this like smile on her face. Like she's, and it's very haunting because it's like, I don't quite know what to make of it. They got justice. She, and she's the one who's almost seemed the most ambiguous about whether she actually wants this or not. Yeah. You know, even though she's the one who had it done to her. Yeah. It's all the other women who immediately say, okay, we need to, we need to have these guys killed. Yeah. And she's silent for most of the movie, and you always kind of wonder what she's thinking. Right. Yeah, Frances Fisher really leads the charge as the eldest. Yeah, and rightfully so, like you said, but it does kind of call into question the idea just of, like, violence begetting violence. You know what I mean? Yeah, and Bill even has that one line, like, you know, haven't we seen enough killing for one day? And it's interesting because that's the line. I mean, I think that shows the depth of this movie and that it's not so clear cut because that message is one that the good guy should say, you know, like this, it's enough killing. And, and this is coming from the sadist of the movie, you know, who, who clearly delights in like humiliating and beating up these other guys just to sort of fill his own ego. Uh, Cause he can't build a house. Right. <laughs> Yeah, a lot of this movie seems to stem from, like, the fragility of the male ego. Totally, yeah. I mean, even the fact that what leads to the sexual assault is the prostitute laughing because the guy had a small penis. Yeah, totally. I forgot about that line. That's key. Said he had a small pecker. And she giggled or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Looked down and saw a small pecker and started giggling, and that's what started this whole thing. Yeah, that's a very key piece of information, actually. Mm -hmm. Um. Clint Eastwood has the the number one best face in movie history, I think. Uh, this Clint, I call it medium old Clint. I thought it was super old Clint, but who knew that, you know, 
he was going to keep doing this into his 90s. But I really love this version of Clint, this medium old Clint when he's, uh, I went to look up how old he was, which I do a lot now. And it's always a little bit unnerving once you turn 50 where you're like, <laughs> oh shit, they were like a year older than me. And I was looking up, I was like, oh my God, please tell me Clint Eastwood wasn't like 53. He was in his 60s. He was 62 or 63 when he made it, thank God. Um, <laughs> but I love that era of Clint to play a character like this. And sort of like in Gran Torino now, he's he's clearly working out his own mortality and uh, leaving these sort of statement films behind him. Uh, like, I, I guess Stallone kind of did it too with the, the final Rockies and the final Rambos, even though I heard that Rambo movie was terrible. Um, like their their legacy is sort of, they're, they're controlling their own legacy and what they leave behind, I think, with movies like this. I read somewhere that um, so, I, first of all, I read that the, the the concept for the movie started sometime in the 1970s. Yeah, it was from a book, I think, right? Maybe. I don't know. It could be, yeah. But I guess Eastwood came across the script sometime in the 80s, but apparently he didn't want to do it right away until he felt like he had aged enough to play the part. Yeah. Which is funny because, like, this movie comes out, I'm sure a lot of people are thinking, oh, this is his swan song. And then That's he what I thought. Thirty years later, he's <laughs> yeah. pumping them out one a year. Um, it's but, really remarkable. But I, I do really want to talk a little bit about this idea of Eastwood as, as actor, but as also as icon. You know, because yeah. I feel like anytime Eastwood is in a movie, he's not just playing the character, but he's bringing his whole history of yeah. characters he's played in the past. Right. Absolutely. And so, Clint Eastwood, like somebody is somebody is a lot like somebody like John Wayne who like they're always linked to their characters in the westerns, right? Yeah. And Clint, you think of the you know, the sil- the man with no name, the guy who comes into town, sets things right and leaves on a horse. Yeah. And I think here he does he technically does do all of those things, but it's a movie where he sort of interrogates his own like you said, it's sort of an, a self-inquiry and interrogating his own persona uh-huh. as that icon. Yep. And what it means to sort of have been like the quote unquote badass guy yeah. who goes and just kills a bunch of people. But now we're seeing again the exact same things happening sort of on paper. Uh-huh. And yet my reaction to it is very different. It's not one of like rah-rah cheering him on. It's yeah. one of like kind of being horrified and chilling you know and i think um nothing there's no there's no more chilling shot in the movie for me is when he leaves the saloon Mm -hmm. and there's like a low shot looking up to him and there's the american flag draped in the background and the rain's falling and he says like or i'll come back here and kill every one of you sons of bitches yeah and then your wives and i'll burn your house down yeah First of all, the fact that the American flag is behind it, it's like linking the idea of violence in American history with yeah. sort of the myth of the West, you know? And it, to me, like, I don't know how other people read it, but to me, I find it like very chilling and not necessarily like, oh, this is awesome. Badass guy taking him out again. Clint got, you know, Clint got it on him over again, you know? It's sort of an anti-violence, anti-gun movie. <laughs> it's weird. Yeah, yeah. It's, I mean, he's he's really making a big statement about, like you said, I mean, not even within the context of this film, but his whole career. And I don't think it. I would go so far as to say it serves as an apology for serving up all these movies. I think it's just more of a reexamination of of this stuff and what does it mean to, to have this kind of violence in movies and then in a character's life. 
on screen. Uh, really pretty heady stuff, you know, like it, it's, there's a lot more going on for such a simple story than meets the eye. Yeah, hundred percent. And and like you said, yeah, I would agree. I wouldn't say apology, but it's yeah, reexamination and an an inquiry into his own role in sort of uh, creating that yeah. icon uh-huh. and asking what what does it mean and what is this leaving behind? You know. Yeah, he definitely did not do anything to glorify any of this or to make him seem like this uh, great character. Like he make he takes great pains to to make sure this character isn't put on any pedestal. Uh, even with, I mean, I guess the one scene where it shows him the most sympathetic is when he's having that really sweet talk with the the woman who was assaulted and she offers him the freebie and he says no and then feels bad because she takes it as like that, you know, she's ugly now because her face was cut up. And it was just such a sweet scene. He's like, you know, I'd, if I was to want a freebie, I guess it would be with you because you're beautiful and we both have scars. And that line, we both have scars, was like just just fantastic. I love that scene. Like you said, it's so tender. And yet it's before the information has been revealed that Clint Eastwood is yeah. somebody who's killed women and children. Totally. And so, again, it's it's such a smart, subtle script in the way it sort of reverses our expectations, I guess. Yeah. You know, because he is capable of tenderness and he is somebody who apparently when he got married and quote unquote settled down, he didn't pick up a gun for a decade and his wife, he says, cured him of, of drink and wickedness. Yeah. You know? and, and the movie, maybe the movie is saying like, what it really takes is a good woman to, to sort of stem the tide of this violence or something. I don't know. Yeah, and you know, we even see it with Ned. I mean, the whole uh message of this movie is just all over the place because Ned can't kill that guy. And Ned is a great shot and he can't bring himself to kill this guy who was laying there sort of helpless under his horse. And the, I think that scene is the peak of annoyance from the Schofield kid when you know, he can't see what's going on. So he's like, "Did you kill him? Did you kill him? Why aren't you killing him? Why aren't you shooting him? What's going on? What's he doing? Why aren't you going to kill him? Didn't you kill him?" And I was just I wanted somebody to just say shut the fuck up for a second like you have no idea what you're talking about right now kid the annoyance of the Schofield kid juxtaposed against sort of Morgan Freeman's face where without almost saying anything yeah you see him sort of working through like oh god I can't do this anymore oh yes geez. I'm the, not the, 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 man, act, the face acting in that scene is just phenomenal yeah it's so good and also I love that scene where we're talking about sort of the idea of of movies glorifying violence, you know, this, they, this is where they're killing the first guy who's sort of the, the accomplice to the crime. Right. Not the super really, bad guy. Yeah. Yeah. Who in my mind, like, I'm not saying he's a good guy, but he's far less, he, you know, he's far less deserving of death in my opinion than the guy who actually did the crime. Right. And yet when they kill him, it's another, it's another one of those scenes where you're kind of like, you expect to get some sort of satisfactory killing. And mm-hmm. yet, what happens is they kind of, he falls on his horse and then it's this long agonizing scene of him trying to call, crawl to safety and they finally shoot him in the gut and then he takes like five more minutes to yeah. die and it's like unglamorous and just really kind of pitiful. Uh, it, it actually bizarrely reminded me of, do you remember that scene in Austin Powers, the first one? <laughs> I swear I'm going somewhere with this, where uh, Will Ferrell's yeah. character gets- Yeah, he's not dead yet. 
<laughs> yeah, he pushes the button. He gets like f- attacked or fed to the sharks or something, and then you think he's dead, and you keep hearing go, "Oh, I'm badly burned, but not dead yet." Yeah, <laughs> it's kind of like the the drama version of that, where it sort of plays up the idea of like movie killings and violence in films, and it's like this doesn't play out like that in real life. <laughs> yeah, it's interesting. I'm going back to that question you asked earlier about how I felt at the end. There, there really isn't a satisfying death in this movie uh they really take all that away from the viewer and i guess bill came as close as possible because he was a truly evil guy and when he died at the end i was kind of like yeah you know like you deserve this but that's kind of it like even even when they they kill the guy in the outhouse the really bad guy who did the assault like you want to see him dead but they don't let you sit there and enjoy that as a viewer, you know, because the kid is immediately horrified with what he had done. And, and Clint is just so cool about it all. He doesn't like, he didn't play into any of this kid's bravado or even, even give him a lot of like, uh, he doesn't laud him at all for what he'd done, like good job or anything like something as simple as that. He doesn't even really do. Again, this killing of the guy who, if anybody does deserve it, it's him. Yeah. And it's it's literally he's sitting on the toilet, uh, like the most vulnerable position a man can be in, yeah. so to speak. And he's like terrified when, you know, Schofield kid's got the gun on him. I think he says, please don't. Yeah, yeah. And then it's not satisfying because you can see the Schofield kid just like taking everything he has just to pull that trigger. Mm-hmm. And then immediately afterwards, when they're talking about it by the tree, I think the Schofield kid says something like, he went for his gun, but I got him first. Yeah. And you can already see him sort of changing the facts to build his own myth up. Yeah. Because when we see the scene, as far as you can tell, the guy wasn't going for his gun. No. He I think, had his hands up. I think it was hanging on the door even. I don't think he could, like, could get to it even. Yeah, it's just no satisfying deaths in this movie, really. Except Gene Hackman a little bit. <laughs> it's, it's interesting you say that because, like, I agree with you on how I view his character as uh-huh. like this sadist who's clearly like drunk with power over these people. Yeah. And yet to me, I still find Eastwood's character the most chilling yeah. by the end, by the end, you know? Um, and I just think it goes to show how there are no clear cut answers in this film and how mm-hmm. different folks can sort of see different things in it, you know? Yeah. And, and Bill is, uh, I, I thought it was interesting that he didn't, allow the retribution against the cowboys for what they had done. Like from the very beginning, he steps in almost like a peacemaker. Again, he says there's been enough bloodshed. Uh, He's really intent on not allowing this to take place. And I guess it's a power move. It's the only thing I could figure out because it seems like the old West eye for an eye. He would have let that happen. Let it die with these two cowboys getting killed. There end up being way more people killed than that because he didn't allow it. And then, you know, taking everyone's guns when they came into town, like that doesn't happen in Westerns either. So this, this movie just, it's, uh, it, it, I don't know about mixed messages, but it's sort of an anti-Western in some ways too, as much as as it is a Western. Yeah. Or, or or a revisionist Western, Yeah, you know? Um, but I think, you know, that, that scene at the beginning where he talks about where you mentioned, you know, um, settling the peace, like, I think it's also because again, little Bill doesn't see the prostitutes as equal to the men who right. committed this crime. Yeah. He equates them with, again, property, much like the horses. 
So in his mind, he's made a square deal, you know, yeah. trade a couple of horses for taking away his, the uh, Skinny's chance to make more money. You right. Know? Yeah. I didn't think he was going to kill Skinny. I think I forgot that when I was watching it this morning. Um, and I was a little surprised when he killed Skinny, but he he went, you know, he broke bad. He went right back to the old guy as soon as he. You know, everything's turned and you know in that, that great setup for the third act, as soon as that uh the woman tells him that Ned was dead, he's like, No, no, no. Ned went south. She's like, No, he's dead. They he beat him to death and he's displayed outside of Greeley's and you just see that switch get flicked and Clint starts drinking again and you know it's just gonna be bloodshed from there on out. And it's so complicated because Ned is, in air quotes, I'm using this, innocent yeah. in the sense that he didn't kill any of the folks he was arrested for. It was done by Money and the mm-hmm. Schofield kid. So he's sort of like, Eastwood, in a sense, is justified to come take revenge on that. And yet there's nothing satisfying about it. Yeah. This is Jody Sweeten from the podcast How Rude Tanneritos. As a nostalgic voice from your past, I'm here to remind you that amongst the stressful and chaotic existence we live in 2024, you deserve to get away. It's time for a vacation, no matter when you're hearing this. And let me tell you how you'll get there. The 2024 Hyundai Santa Fe. Want to bring the family to the mountains with the Santa Fe's available H-Track all-wheel drive? Well, it's got standard third-row seating and available dual wireless charging pads for the kids who just want to stare at their phone and not talk to you. You know what I mean. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. If you use paper, you're a human. But if you choose paper, you're a papertarian. Someone who lives a paper-based lifestyle because it has a positive impact on the planet. And also because it's the easiest choice you'll make all day. Seriously. It's as easy as reaching for boxed instead of bottled water. It's as easy as opting for beauty products that come in paper packaging. It's as easy as grabbing eggs in a cardboard container. And that's all in one trip to the grocery store, which, if we're being honest, you were planning to go to anyway. But paper isn't just an easy choice. Papertarians know that it's the smart choice, too. Because paper comes from trees, a renewable and sustainably managed resource. And paper products are designed to be recycled. In fact, when you choose products that come in paper-based packaging, those fibers can go on to be recycled up to seven times. So why wouldn't you go Papertarian? I'll wait. Learn more at howlifeunfolds.com slash papertarian. The Home Depot wants every mom to have their own outdoor oasis this Mother's Day. Whether that be a new space to relax or a beautiful garden upgrade, at The Home Depot, you can give mom a gift that's as unique as she is with a stylish and comfortable place to entertain or relax for the mom who does it all. And with convenient delivery, you won't have to stress over getting it to her either. Looking to step up your Mother's Day flowers for the mom who's great with gardening? Let mom's green thumb do some digging with colorful flowers, pots, and premium soils to 
bring out the most in our patios, walkways, and gardens with the Home Depot's Mother's Day Savings Event happening now. Get Vigoro Potting Soil, just $8.97 for strong, healthy, vibrant plants indoors and outside. Start your Mother's Day shopping and saving today by checking out the Home Depot's extensive selection online at homedepot.com or directly in-store near you with convenient pickup and delivery options. See homedepot.com slash delivery for details. The Home Depot, how doers get more done. I also, I think it is worth mentioning sort of Morgan Freeman's role in how race plays a part in this film. Yeah. And I think it's it's super interesting because the film never explicitly comments on race, at least not verbally. But I do think it's very consciously through its imagery evoking racial issues. And I think the obvious one is when you see Ned getting whipped by Gene Hackman. Yeah. It like immediately makes you think of like lynchings, you know? Yeah, yeah. And the fact that the black man is whipped for something he didn't do. Mm-hmm. And then he's he's proudly displayed the way like, you know, a lynching would hang somebody right. and then show it off, you know? And again, the film never really mentions it in its script, but it's very much there. Totally. And, um, obviously, Ned was a killer in his past, just like Eastwood was. Yeah, but he's retired too, you know? He's retired too. And as far as the characters in this in this town know, they, they probably don't know anything about that, you know? Right. And so in that sense, he is sort of an innocent, wrongly killed. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, I mentioned earlier about Clint, there were so many opportunities, I think, for him to have these tough guy lines that like Arnold would have, and he just, he never does it. And I, I started to think that like, that's that's sort of Clint Eastwood, period. Like, he's an actor who has built a career out of uh, not a lot of dialogue. I bet if you like had some algorithm that ran like total total words spoken by major actors, he would be at the, well, I guess at the bottom of the list of fewest words spoken. And that's just sort of one of the hallmarks of him as an actor, I think, is I can't think of many movies where he's had a a monologue, you know, even. Like, it's always these sort of clipped lines and clipped answers. He says so much with that fucking face of his. And uh, the one at the end where he says, you know, I'll see you in hell you know, that I mentioned earlier from Hackman, and he just goes, yeah. <laughs> and that's it. Like any other movie, they would write some super cool thing or something tough or a great comeback or whatever, and you just, you don't need that stuff. He just strips all that away. I really love it. That's how, how expressive his face is. Yes. And yet it's like, it's a, it's a face that's not really expressive at all <laughs> in the traditional sense. Right. It's but, very stoic, yeah. Yeah, but... And also, I think it's, you know, it's the baggage he carries as a, sort of that icon of of Western masculinity, you mm-hmm. know, like every line or line he doesn't say is imbued with all the movies he's been in before. It's it's imbued with the go ahead, make my day. Mm-hmm. It's imbued with all the sort of classic, you know, one liners he said in films of the past. Yeah, he did have some pretty great one liners back then, but they were still pretty short. But, uh, but pretty short. Yeah, I know. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Um, I, I don't think that our boss will mind if I tell this story, but our boss, Connell, uh, that everyone's probably heard us mention, he's the one that founded and started Stuff You Should Know and all of the shows many, many years ago, and now he's our boss again at iHeart. Great guy, good friend. He is good friends with Bradley Cooper, and I've mentioned that on the show, and he told me a story a couple of years ago about uh, going to a barbecue at, at the house Clint Eastwood was renting. They were shooting uh, 
Uh, what movie would it have been? They were shooting something here in Atlanta. I know they shot a, um, was it The Mule? Or, um, maybe, tra- uh, maybe it was parts. Yeah, Bradley Cooper was in that, right? Yeah. Yeah, okay. I know they shot that in Atlanta. Yeah, they were shooting The Mule here. And he had a little, you know, they, a lot of the actors have rented houses here in Atlanta when they work. And Clint had one rented and had an afternoon barbecue on like a Sunday. And uh, Brad invited Connell to come and his family. So Connell is there barbecuing with Clint Eastwood and Bradley Cooper and uh, Krasinski and Emily Blunt are there with their kids and uh, a couple of other actors. The other guy from the meal that I love so much, I can never think of his name. And uh, he said, man, it's crazy. And, he, and he's been to stuff like this before now through Bradley. Um, but he's still, he's like, you know, you still don't get used to it. And he said, mm-hmm. I look over at one point and an 88-year-old or 87-year-old Clint Eastwood at the time is just standing there having a conversation with Connell's like six-year-old daughter. And it's the cutest thing in the world. And I'm just like, this is nuts, man, that like you get to peek in on these scenes like that. Uh, and he just, he was a really good guy. And, you know, I'm sure you've heard the legend of his movie sets and what they're like to work on. Uh, but for the benefit of the listener, Clint Eastwood movie sets are very calm very meticulously planned out. So there's no drama. Uh, he doesn't, I think all the walkies either have to be off or turn really low. No one's yelling and screaming. No one's rushing. He, he's just legendarily known for, for running a really friendly, calm, uh, humane set where you work uh, like, you know, eight or nine hours and get it done quickly and efficiently and just kind of move on with your life. And, that kind of says it all, I think, about the guy. And he's also known for not doing a lot of takes. Yeah. He'll knock a shot out in two or three takes and say, okay, we got it. Sure. He's directed 39 is, movies. Like, you don't want to. Yeah. And he said, like, part of that comes from his experiences as an actor. Sort of totally. The things he learned, like, okay, I like being directed this way. I don't like being directed this way. Right. And that's fascinating to me as as also somebody who directs and has directed, like, I would love the idea to be able to knock out a scene or a shot in just two or three takes. And I, I would love to do that, but it's so hard to do that, you know, because you like, have to have a lot of confidence in what you're doing, you know, and that comes with doing it a lot. So I wouldn't feel too bad. <laughs> I know, but, but, and the fact that he gets such great performances out yeah. of whether he is the one acting or it's Bradley Cooper or, uh, Paul Walter Hauser in Richard Jewell or just these wonderful performances. And I'm like, man, yeah. How do you do? And he's, yeah, he's known for not doing a lot of takes, uh, like uh, normal-ish work hours, yep. uh, and usually f- finishing a film on time yeah. and under budget. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Close to Clint. I, I mean, I, I know he's gotten uh, like the Lifetime Achievement Award as director and stuff like that now. Uh, but I, I just think for a lot of years, he just, everyone sort of thought of, thought of him as an actor. And I think maybe some people maybe not, didn't even realize he directed play Misty for me and outlaw Josie Wales and, uh, and just some of his like all time classics. He was behind the camera for those movies kind of quietly behind the camera. He's not a, a chest thumper when it comes to pumping himself up in his movies or, you know, in the press after he's made his movies. So I have a ton of respect for the guy. Uh, I, I wish he was one of these great old grizzled liberal Democrats. <laughs> yeah. Like this old hippie. That'd be you know, fantastic. I think part of that is why I think his movies continue to fascinate me because yeah. to see somebody who has almost polar opposite politics as myself yeah. 
to find things to really love and admire in somebody who inherently sort of disagrees with me probably on a lot of fundamental things, I yeah. think shows a lot of maturity as a, as a director, as an actor to, you know, question the traditional, you know, conservative pillars of what conservatism stands for. Yeah, um, he's not, I don't feel like he has an agenda as a filmmaker. And that kind of sums it up best, you know, he, um, cause he very much could. And anytime someone is so upfront about their politics and, and held public office for God's sake. He was the mayor of Carmel at the sea. Mayor of Carmel. That. Yeah. Carmel's yeah. lovely. It's lovely area out there. I'll have to check it out. Uh, I love the, the couple of bits of humor. There's two running jokes in this movie, which are kind of fun in a pretty bleak movie is, uh, him and that horse trying to get yep. up on the horse was kind of fun. And then in Gene and then Bill's, uh, poor carpentry. <laughs> they, they get a few good chuckles out of that, uh, that stuff as well oh and also the duck of death yeah the duck that's right <laughs> that's right there were three jokes that they played in this movie because they did hit that one a couple of times but just so lo-fi very little fanfare almost like a trope of a plot you know grizzled old veterans come out of retirement to do one last job it's like the oceans 11 the anti-oceans 11 you know <laughs> yeah but he just he gets away with it without feeling like a trope because it's just there's more uh, subtext and there's more under the surface and the pacing of it is so languid and just really lets you as a viewer. He, I feel like he always sort of gives a lot of credit to the viewers to make up their own mind about stuff. He doesn't, he's not Oliver Stone hammering you over the head with like, you should feel this way about this. Yeah, man. Just a very conscientious filmmaker. Yeah. I think, you know, when you said he does, he's not showy about his politics or like, at least in, in his films or like what he believes, I think he's just very much like a humanist in the sense of like, he rarely, despite showing terrible characters sometimes, he rarely will outwardly judge a character yeah. in his films, and he'll often just show what they did and maybe show how they view themselves in the world. Yeah, and I think if you ask Clint Eastwood, he, he was well known for playing vigilantes, whether they were out west or Dirty Harry style guys, and I think he probably became a champion of some of these, you know, sort of gun-toting, good guy with a gun out on the street dudes. I don't think Clint would endorse that, in real life, even though he is, you know, a strong conservative, I don't think, I don't think he really thinks people should go out and take the law into their own hands and do that stuff. He's not beating his chest about vigilanteism, you know, even though he played those roles. Maybe I'm wrong, but I just, I don't see him as, as that guy. No, man. And just to see him sort of question that violence in a film like Unforgiven. Yeah. In a film like, some people might disagree with me, but I think American Sniper also questions that violence yeah now some people I, I know a lot of people are divided on that film but i think it, it actually does question sort of that idea of that um violence wrapped up in sort of american culture yeah i mean now that i think of it there, there's a lot of ambiguity of feeling in in a lot of his films i think uh and that's to me the mark of a really confident filmmaker because i feel like so so many times a filmmaker has a point of view they really want to get across and try so hard to make it super clear and i feel like he's he's more comfortable wading into ambiguous waters which is what you do in your in your 80s and 90s and you've directed 39 movies there's someone who said some i think director somebody famous who ages ago said like the more something along the lines of the more important of a theme or a point you want to make in a movie mm -hmm. the less obvious it should be like yeah. it should have an inverse correlation where the, yeah. the the more important the theme the more hidden it should be so yeah. to speak and i think eastwood is a great example of that totally 
man, that's a good, yeah, for anyone out there trying to write stuff, that's a very good lesson. Because uh, I, I think the instinct is to, is to want people to see things like you see things as a writer or filmmaker. Whether it's you should fall in love with this person or you should want to kill this person. Yeah, it's really hard to sort of do convincing ambiguity or yeah. convincing ambivalence where it's not telling the viewer how they should feel or think. Yeah, good stuff. Yeah. Uh, well, my docket is empty. Do you have anything, any other notes you want to hit? Um, let me see here. I think that about does it for me. Uh, great movie. Great movie. I actually, Eastwood's uh, birthday was just a couple weeks ago. Is he 91? I think he's, yeah, he just turned 91 and there was wow. some Twitter, Twitter thing going around where it was like hashtag four favorite Eastwoods or something. So people were posting their four favorite Clint Eastwood movies. Yeah. So I, there's a lot I've seen of his. There's a lot I haven't seen of his. Well, he's made a ton but, of movies. <laughs> I know. But as of now, my four favorites are this, mm -hmm. Bridges of Madison County. Great movie. J. Edgar. I never saw that. It's good. Leo, Leonardo DiCaprio. Great. And it's another one where it's about like J. Edgar, this like. A very complicated man. Yeah, totally. Uh, and it's another sort of ambiguous film. And then uh, a movie called White Hunter Black Heart. Have yeah, you ever heard of that? Sure. Have you seen it? Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. That was great. Again, I just watched, that's another one I just watched for the first time a few weeks ago and just loved it. And I'm like excited to just keep going through his filmography because there's like probably 20 I still haven't seen. Yeah, boy, I don't know if I could, that would be very hard for me because I grew up with those Dirty Harry movies and I love the shit out of them. Uh... Pale Rider is awesome. Play Misty for Me is great. I haven't seen those, so that I got something to look forward to. Have you seen Million Dollar Baby? Yes, I have. Great movie. Okay. That's a tearjerker. Yeah. No spoilers. <laughs> that movie yeah. whew, jerked the rug out from under me. Did not see that yeah. coming. Uh, well, awesome, man. It's so good to see you again and good to get you back in here. Uh, oh, maybe we should start doing, a, I don't know about a full Eastwood series, but I'd be game for doing another one. A hundred percent, man. I'm so glad we got to talk about Eastwood today, and I would be more than happy to talk about uh, another film by him. Yeah, he's one of those where when he passes, I will uh, I put him in the category of like the Willie Nelsons and these sort of icons of culture that uh, kept doing great things, you know, and, and inspiring people to do great things. Because I think there's so much ageism in, in culture and music and uh, entertainment that like, Love seeing these olds up there still killing it. It's great. Yeah, man. And the fact that like, <laughs> I think you mentioned he's, he got a lifetime achievement award at the Oscars. I want to say he got that in like the nineties, probably <laughs> give him another one, <laughs> give him another one. Cause that's like Two lifetimes. You know, 25 years <laughs> later and he's still out there killing it, man. Good Amazing. for you, Clint. All right. Good stuff, Paul. And uh, thanks to everyone for listening. Go check out Unforgiven if you have not, or any Clint Eastwood movie for that matter, even every which way but loose. And any which way you can. <laughs> Those are kind of fun too, in a 70s way. Uh, and we'll see you guys next week. Movie Crush is produced and written by Charles Bryant and Noel Brown, edited and engineered by Seth Nicholas Johnson, and scored by Noel Brown here in our home studio at Ponce Market, Atlanta, Georgia, for iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. This is Malcolm Gladwell from Revisionist History eBay Motors is here for the ride. With some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Brake kits, LED headlights, whatever you need, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride 
the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. What's up, y'all? Janice Torres here. And I'm Austin Hankwitz. We're the hosts of Mind the Business, Small Business Success Stories, a podcast presented by iHeartRadio's Ruby Studios and Intuit QuickBooks. Join us as we speak with small business owners about the tools they use to turn their ideas into success. From finding that initial spark of entrepreneurship to organizing payments and invoices, we've got you covered. So follow and listen to Mind the Business, Small Business Success Stories on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you get your podcasts. You've probably heard a lot about electrified vehicles lately. Well, Toyota has electrified options for every lifestyle. We've got hybrids, no plug needed. let's go. But we also have plug-in hybrids, if that's your thing. (laughs) You can even go 100% electric in the Toyota BZ4X. With so many options for reducing carbon emissions, Toyota is electrified, diversified. Learn more about our Beyond Zero vision for the future at toyota.com slash beyondzero. 